This week on Monday, I went out as I, I, it was either Monday or Tuesday, as I customarily do in the morning to, to read the Word. And I think for some reason, I, I don't particularly know why, sometimes we always don't know what it is. Um, I think I was just discouraged a little bit, maybe just a little fatigued and tired and maybe just battling um, some things, maybe just the circumstances that had a way of just uh, kind of just sapping your joy, you know, sapping your energy. And it did so to me. And, you know, I'm getting older now that when I'm like that, I think when I was young, I would usually not stay in the word, but I, I, I try to just obviously be regularly in the word, not just in my teaching, but also in my personal life. And I have this little sheet here that I work towards. It's just, I call it the green sheet. It's a two-year Bible reading plan. And in that particular passage that day in the Gospel of Mark, it was really used to just encourage me in, in, a, in a profound way to take my thoughts and to take potentially just my discouragement of the day and turn it by the reading of the Scripture. And I thought what I would do, because I knew that I had a short week this week, I was away just for uh, oh, three days maybe up at a, a worship conference. Yeah, I thought that maybe I would just bring this text to you today. I didn't have time to do the full study in the book of James with that conference and a memorial service that I went to, but I think this passage so ministered to my heart uh, that I wanted to bring it to you, and then we'll jump back into the book of James. I was careful with that passage in James on the one, if anyone among you sick, let them call on the elders. It's a very um, interesting passage that takes a great amount of time, and I didn't want to shortchange that knowing that my week would be different. So I invite you to turn in your Bible this morning to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and just to remind you of this text there, I think it's a familiar account to you, and it was the account that I read that day in my reading of the Word of God and that two-year Bible plan, and I thought I would just bring to you my thoughts and the encouragement that comes to us from this text. Let me read that familiar account to you in Mark six forty-five down through 52, and I found it just fascinating. There is a number of statements in here that uh, allude to a number of truths in the Old Testament Scripture, and I pray that it would be an encouragement to you as it was to my own heart. Look at the reading of God's Word in 645. Immediately, he made the disciples to get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take hearts. It is I, do not be afraid. And when he got into the boat with them, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What a great, great text. I mean, the miracle here is a lesson of faith, a lesson of trust that he will give to his disciples. He is ever preparing the disciples as he is ever preparing us in their faith, and he does so, and as I mentioned, he continues to do so today. He deepens our faith, he deepens our walk, he deepens our trust, and he often does that, does he not, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trials, and for the sake of a term here, in the midst of the storms of life. He's ever teaching us. I mean, it could be that you've come here this morning with heartbreak. I don't know. Maybe you feel the tumultuous sea is all around you. Possibly you come into the house of worship and feel without hope in your trial, without guidance as it pertains to your future. And the bottom line is that maybe some of you, maybe as I was this week, are anxious about things, 
anxious about tomorrow. You may be asking, as one did, what will become of our children? Will they believe God? Will they forsake God? What will become of our health? Will we lose our memories? Who will take care of us? Will we spend the last 10 years, as some have said, outliving our friends and family, abandoned, slumped over in a wheelchair at a rural nursing home? What will become of our marriages? Will we laugh? Will we pray? Will we talk? Will there be peace? Will it be a stained and dissatisfying relationship for 30 more years, for 40 more years? What will it be like tomorrow and tomorrow? And we're fraught with questions like this. For four hours, he was holding a cylinder, if you can imagine this, a true account. He was waiting for rescue from an immediate death because after digging up what appeared to be an unexploded World War I bomb, David Page held onto it, afraid of letting go that if he let go of it, it would detonate the device. And so while holding the bomb, the terrified 40-year-old man from Norfolk, England, called an emergency operator on his mobile phone. He's holding this thing, and he picks up his phone. And he even used the call to issue his last words for his family. And the woman police operator kept saying it would be okay. And Paige said, but I kept saying to her, you're not the one holding the bomb. And so the first responders rushed to the workyard in eastern England. And an army bomb disposal expert, the experts finally arrived. But the drama came to a very abrupt end when the bomb was identified. It was part of a hydraulic suspension system from a popular European car. And he was okay. He was okay. And, he, and you know, you can imagine just the, the fear that gripped his heart and then you're holding a suspension system. And he realized that all of his panic was for naught. I mean, there are times when we find ourselves frozen with irrational fear. And all at the same time, we know that the one who is in us is greater than the one in the world, and yet we forget the strength of our protector. All the while, we clutch to our fear. And maybe sometimes, as he found out, we just need to relax. It's not a bomb. You're going to be okay. And so here is this account of this story in the account of the life of the disciples. It's a lesson of faith. And I want to look at this lesson of faith by looking at three scenes, okay, of Jesus walking on the water that reveals his deity and comforts us in a time of trial. Three scenes, okay, of him walking on the water that reveal his deity, and then all at the same time it comforts us in the midst of our trial or in the midst of our storm. We're going to look at his appearance, okay, first. Then second scene, his assurance. And then thirdly, the disciples' astonishment. So we've got an appearance, an assurance, an astonishment. And it's really a fascinating account. I think you grasp the, the details as maybe I do as we read it, but there's, there's a lot more there than sometimes than first meets the eye. Let's go to the first scene, okay? It's the appearance of our Lord. Pick up the text in verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Now you'll note there as you walk in here under this heading of the appearance of our Lord, the first word is immediately. Mark always uses that word in his gospel. And what you want to do is you want to make sure that you tie that word immediately into the previous passage. Now, I won't take the time to go over that previous passage, but if you look back in your Bible from about chapter 6, from verse 30 down through 44, I have the heading in my Bible that Jesus feeds the 5,000. 
Now, you know when it says, if you glance down in your Bible at verse 44, that those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So here, at least in the paragraph marker, it says he feeds the 5,000. It's probably better to say that he fed the 25,000. There's 5,000 men, then there's wives, then there's children. It's very understandable that most scholars would say that he fed about 25,000 people. And you know the account, he set them down and fed them all. And so as you come now to verse 45, immediately right after that, he made the disciples get into the boats. Now, you know, you just read that there in the ESV. He made the disciples get into the boat. He compelled them to get in the boats is the thought. In other words, there is a sense of urgency in this, unmistakable urgency to get in the boat. I mean, it's rather abrupt when you just read it in the language. So he feeds the 5,000, and then he just kind of moves them and compels them almost by force to get into the boat. Now, we don't know why, at least in Mark's gospel, why he was compelling them to get in the boat. But when you you compare gospel with gospel, Mark says nothing here in the text, and it's okay if we just leave it at that. But John says in his gospel this, right after he fed the 5,000 or the 25,000. John said in 6.15 that after he fed those, that great mass of people, Jesus, quote, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountain himself to pray alone. So after he had done that miracle, he knew that crowd, it was, it was moving. Hey, we've never, I mean, think about that. He feeds 25,000. I mean, he's just creating a miracle in his hands with, what was it, five fish and two, two pieces of bread? I mean, he's just, they're just, the disciples are there, and he's just creating it from nothing. It's not like there's a bakery back there. He's just creating it, we call it ex nihilo, in his hand. I think some of the liberals say, well, he had some secret stash of bread in the back, and that takes more faith than to just read it at face value. And so after he does that, they're thinking, hey, this, who is this? And they're going to make him king, but Jesus didn't come to be the king, did he, at the beginning? He came, and his mission was, according to Mark 10, 45, that he would give his life a ransom for many. So as he perceives about what they're going to do, he takes the disciples forcibly, and with authority and commands that they get into the boat and go to the other side. And I think because he came to suffer and die. Now look at the text again in verse 46. And after he sends them off, he sends the crowd off. And 46 says, after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. I mean, I think it just stunned me reading that on Monday morning. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, sends them away to pray. Now, it's fascinating as you read through Mark's gospel that there's three instances in his gospel where Jesus retreats to pray. He does it in Mark chapter 1. After a very successful ministry, he retreats up to the mountain to pray because I think he's praying. Some say he's praying for the disciples here. No, I think he's praying to his father to line his will up to the father's mission that he came and he was on a mission to die. So he did that in Mark 1. He does it here. Secondly, retreats to the mountain in prayer in Mark 6 after they wanted to make him king. And then the third instance is in Mark 14 before his betrayal and before his crucifixion. He leaves the disciples and goes to the mountain and prays. And each prayer that's recorded in the gospel of Mark is at night. It's in a lonely place. And in each case, there is a crisis that is being forced. You say, well, what's the crisis here? Well, look down again at verse 47. Here's the crisis. When the evening came and the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. Stop there just for a second. Now the story picks up. The evening's here. The boat is out on the sea. Now you're reading that in the ESV, out on the sea. John says he's out in the middle of the sea. And so here, he was alone on the land. You get the picture. Jesus led them, and maybe I just imply this right now. He led them straight into the storm. He led them straight into the trial. It's not that they're disobedient. They're following him, 
But he leads them right out alone this time. Remember before in Mark 4, he's in the boat with them, asleep in the stern of the boat. In this case, they're not. He's on the land, they're alone, and he sends them away and they're obedient even in that. And he had a a lesson for them. You say, well, what was the lesson? Well, look at the text again in verse 48. Here as he's on the land, it says he saw that they were making headway painfully. Verse 48 says, for the wind was against them. Now the text says in verse 48, he saw them. Okay, you might ask the question, how did he see them? Well, I would just tell you this, and we'll find this out in January if you're on your way with us. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long, and it's about 7.5 miles across. And when you put the other gospel account together, they're out in the sea, okay? In fact, they're, in my estimate, according to the language of the other gospel, they're three to four miles out into the sea rowing, okay? John six nineteen, And he sees them. You say, well, what kind of vision is that? Is that regular vision? No, that's miraculous vision. Miraculous vision. So I'm thinking when I'm reading this on Monday, I'm thinking about that stupid show, The Bionic Man. You know, do, 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 you know what I mean? Remember that? How many of you watched The Bionic Man? Okay, some of you know when he had that after he got in the accident, do, 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 and he can see. Listen, Jesus, this is a miracle all by itself. There's two miracles here. One is that he's going to walk on the water, but here he sees them. He's on the shore. He's on the land. He's by himself, and he sees them. And what he sees is, look at the text again in verse 48. They're making headway, it says, painfully. One translation says they're just straining at the oars, okay? Now, I just remind you that these guys, by trade, are what? They're fishermen. These aren't like little wimpy men, you understand? These are brawny dudes, And he looks and he sees them and they're just straining at the oars. They're just making headway painfully. In fact, it's kind of an interesting word here. The word that is described there is in other places to speak of torture. It is this graphic picture of exertion. You say, well, why are they straining? Well, look at the text again. It's right there. Four, verse 48, the wind was against them. And I, you know, I don't want to apply too quick, but Have you ever felt that way in a storm? (laughs) Have you ever felt that way in a trial? You're just going, 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 and nothing seems to be happening. You're rowing, 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 and you're fighting, and you're really fighting, but you just kind of look around, and you're in the same place you were a month ago or two months ago or six months ago or a year ago, okay? In fact, the text says in John's gospel in 6.18 that there was a strong wind blowing, is what that says. In Matthew's gospel in 14.24, it says that the boat was being battered by waves for the wind was contrary. So there's Jesus, presumably miles away, okay? He's God and he's looking and here's these buff, burly, brawn men and they're just They're straining at the oars, okay? These violent winds, they would tell us in history, could whip the sea into fury, and it would make the boat like a cork that was being tossed in a furious storm. And I'm thinking, it doesn't say per se how long, but just think, he sent them away at the feeding, I'm going to call it the 25,000. And he sees them straining, and I'm thinking they're probably still rowing. My opinion is it'd probably take a... I don't know, maybe an hour to get to the other side. I'm thinking it's about six hours, maybe eight hours. And they're probably mumbling like, why did Jesus send us to the other side, right? And we get that way. Have you ever asked that in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your storm, in the midst of your sickness, in the midst of death? I mean, things happen in life and you're wondering and they're not out of the will of God. He pushed them in the boat and said, get out and they get out and kaboom, right? Now, look what the Bible says in verse 48. I mean, they are in the perfect storm. It says about and about, verse 48, the fourth night of the watch, he came to them. Now here Mark's writing for a Roman crowd and Roman time has four watches. 
not wristwatches, four watches of time. And you can see it there. It's the fourth watch of the night. It is the darkest time of the night, if you will. It is the fourth watch. When is that? 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So if he pushes them off before the sun sets, you can see why I'm thinking six, eight hours maybe. They're just rowing. They're just straining. And now we're talking, it's the fourth watch, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Now what's intriguing to me, I'm just reading the text, is he waited until the middle of the night. Have you ever had a trial that God doesn't solve it very quickly and you want him to? Okay. And you may be asked, does he care? Does he know? Why doesn't he just fix it quickly? So they're just... Again, it's the, just, just, they make a foot and then they lose a foot. They make a foot. And these guys, I'm thinking these are strong, burly dudes. They can't get in anywhere. But look at the text again in verse 48. It says about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them and it says walking on the what? The sea. Now we're just reading the Bible this morning. It's in the historical present tense. In other words, Mark writes it in a graphic way. Historical present Put yourself on the Sea of Galilee. They're straining. They're getting battered by the wind. A little different than Mark 4. The boat, the water was filling up in the boat and they thought they were going to die. This one, the, just the winds are just beating them down like a cork, you know. And then he, they see him walking on the sea. And Mark again puts it in the historical present tense. Literally, just imagine this. He's just walking and the word is just right on the sea, stepping right over the water through the rough waves. Now, I find that just interesting just for a moment. Though the disciples can't get anywhere in the boat, he's just walking on the water. That's a miracle, right? Second miracle. First, boop, boop, boop. I mean, that's not Hollywood. This is real vision. You can see him. And then he just comes walking on the water. Now, some liberals try to take away this miracle. See, I have to read some of this stuff. One liberal scholar said that Jesus was walking on submerged stones. Kind of like... Uh, and that's my picture. I mean, I, you think, where do these guys come up with this stuff? I don't know. There's submerged stones. It was a great, great thing that he was doing, wasn't it? And it looked like he was walking on the water, but he's, he's kind of just walking on submerged stones. Another said, and I'm not joking on this, that he had flaps on his feet, kind of like skis, but I don't even know how that would work. It still takes greater miracle to believe that. He had kind of like what someone said as a special boat shoes. There's still another liberal who said this is an optical illusion. In what way? They said really what Jesus was doing was an illusion, kind of like the magicians do today. He was on the shore is what they said um, and he's kind of walking, but it looks like he's walking on the water, but he's walking on the shore. But that can't be because the text is clear that the boat was out in the sea. No, 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 no. This is a miracle. This is the supernatural entering into the natural, okay? You say, well, what's the point? Well, I think it's obvious. Only God can what? Walk on water. That's the point. Only God can walk on water. Job 38, 16 says this when God answered him, Job, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? And Job can only say no, but God's saying I have. Have you? Only God can walk on water. It's so clear. It's all over Psalm 77, verse 19. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Listen, I think Mark's clear in his gospel. Just as he has authority to forgive sins, just as he has authority over nature, just as he has authority over demonic spirits, if you will, he, uh, he now has authority over just the elements. He walks only, listen, where God can walk. Now, look at the text fascinating. Most people miss this. They skip over it. Look at verse 48. He comes on the fourth night of the watch and he came to them walking on the sea. Have you ever wondered about this? And he meant to, what does it say? Pass by them. 
Now, think about that. You see him. There he is. And it says, and you just have to read it, as it says, he meant to pass by them. It's somewhat bizarre. I mean, what could this mean? Well, some would say that Jesus intends to, I'm just laughing saying it. He tends to overtake the disciples, okay, and playfully surprise them on the other side. So in my words, after I read that, I thought it was kind of like if they're in the boat right here, he's going to kind of walk by them playfully is what one author said. And then I'm thinking when he, once he gets to the other side, aha, I gotcha. Boo, it's me, you know. So they said he was intending to pass them by only, you know, so that they could get to the other side and playfully surprise him. And others said Jesus wants to pass by, but does not do so when he sees their distress. So he's going to pass by, but when he saw them in distress, he, he stopped. But the hard part with that is he's already seen them in distress. While he was on the land, he saw them straining, if you will, at the oars. Now listen. This phrase, it's a marvelous phrase. Look at it again. He meant to pass by them. This is a key for us. Because certainly you remember in the Old Testament, that phrase, to pass by, had a special meaning. And the special meaning spoke, that phrasing, of the self-disclosure of God. Or another way to say it would be the self-revelation of God. Or if I put it in the language of our point, the appearance of God. Certainly you remember Grace Church of the Valley at Mount Sinai when Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, you can't see my glory for no one can see the face of God and what? Live. But I'll put you... In the cleft of the rock, and the Bible's very clear in Exodus 33, that God passed by, what? Moses. He showed Moses, if you will, remember, the backside. And so he put him in the cleft of the rock, and then he lets his, my words, his glory passed by him, and it passed by Moses. What was it? We call it a theophany. A self-disclosure of God. A self-revelation of God. And so as God revealed himself there to Moses, he passed by Moses and let his presence pass by Moses. Now, and then it says that he revealed his name. The other place is in 1 Kings 19, we don't have time, at Mount Horeb, probably take you there in January, it says that the Lord revealed his presence, his person, to Elijah, and it uses this phrase, in passing by Elijah. So as God would make himself seen, make himself known, not fully, he passes by Moses, and in 1 Kings 19, he passes by Elijah, revealing his presence. But let let me show you another one, though. This This is amazing. Look over at Job, okay? Let me just turn you to Job just for a second. In Job chapter 9, here I find this language so fascinating. Job, when it's speaking here in Job chapter 9, verse 8, and Job's saying this in verse 8, who alone, and he's speaking of God, he, verse 7, commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals up the stars in Job 9, 7. 9, 8, who alone stretched out the heavens, and watch this, And trampled the what? The waves of the sea. In other words, he's talking about God. He steps, tramples on the waves of the sea. Look at verse 9. Who made the bear and the Orion and the Pleiades and the chambers of the south. Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Now here's what's fascinating. Verse 11. Behold, he passes by me. And I see him, what? Not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, what are you doing? 
And Job there recounts the separation, does he not, between God and humanity. Speaking of God and, spe- and comparing it, his wisdom is beyond compare. He moves mountains. He shakes the earth. He obscures the sun. He arrays the heavens in splendor. And here in 9.8, God tramples down on the sea. Listen, only God does those things. So that Edwards, the commentator, said, listen, when Jesus, this is right on, passes by the disciples, he intends to make the mysterious God of Job visible. In other words, the God of Israel, awesome but unknowable face to face, is now passing by the disciples in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the appearance of God in the person of Christ. And the disciples, listen Grace Church, see more than God's back as Moses did. They saw God. They saw the glory of God in the face of His Son. And so His divine appearance is answer to their question earlier in Mark 4 after He calmed the storm when they said, Who then is this? Well, the answer to that question in Mark 4 is, listen, only God can walk on water. Jesus is what? He's God. Now, you would say, man, that is incredible, right? Well, I think so, just preaching. But if you're out in the boat, look back in Mark now. Evidently, not to them. Not to them. Look back in Mark chapter 6. Verse 49, it says he meant to pass by at the end of 48. But in 49, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a what? A ghost. These men are in the boat, straining. And here he comes, but who they think he is is a ghost. In the Greek, a phantasma. A water phantom is what they think. Listen, his presence should have comforted them, but it frightened them. And I think just practically, I'll throw this in for us. In the eye of the storm, you don't recognize him either for who he is. I mean, it could be even this morning you walk in. I have no idea. Nobody told me to preach on this. I'm probably preaching it to my own heart. Do you recognize who he is? In the storm, when it's battling against you? You say, well, what happened when they thought he was a ghost? Look at the text again in verse 49. They, it says, cried out. Now, you can underline that. It's funny in English, but it just means it was a scream of terror. I mean, these guys, grown men, are scared to death. They're thinking it's a ghost. It's a, it's a water phantom. You say, well, what happened? Well, look on in verse 15, 50. They all saw him and were, what? Terrified. Terrified. I mean, maybe they're thinking humans, human beings don't walk on water, do they? And superstitious Herod thought Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And listen, the superstitious disciples think that Jesus here is a ghost. Now you say, what would Jesus do? Is he going to rip them? <laughs> is he going to castigate them? No, look at the text, verse 50. But immediately... Okay, I love that. He spoke to them and said this phrase, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And so I take you here from the first scene of his appearance to the second scene, we'll just call it his assurances. Okay, I don't want to dabble long here, but he gives three assurances to them, to these disciples. But I love the phrase once they screamed and cried out in terror, he immediately gave this to them. He says, look at that first assurance in verse 50. He says to them, he spoke to them, I love that, and said, take hearts, or literally, take courage, or be of good courage. I I love that. He just assures them, ever so tender is the Savior. And rather than rebuking them, he says, take hearts, take courage. I mean, he could have said to them, Boo. Have you ever done that? Come up to somebody when they're not expecting to come up? I mean, he could have just, but he doesn't do that. He just says, take courage. Second assurance, look, verse 50. It is what? I. (laughs) 
It is I. And in the Greek, okay, you don't need to know this, but it just literally means, here's the phrase. You get it? I am. Now, we're translating the ESV, it is I. But it's ego, I, me. So you can write there in your Bible if you want. It literally means I am. Does that sound familiar to you? It is identical, Grace Church of the Valley, with God's self-disclosure to Moses when Moses said, who will I say sent me? Send, you know, say, who, who, who sent me? You know, and God answers him and says in Exodus 3.14, I am who I, what? Am. And he said, thus, you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am. So Jesus says to assure them, take heart, take courage. I am. Or in this phrase, it is I. I'm thinking of Isaiah 41.4. I, the Lord, Yahweh in that case, am the first and the last. I am He. What a statement. Listen, let me say it this way. Put it together. He not only walks where God walks, He tramples on the sea, but he also takes on his name, the great I am. In fact, you're well aware of John 6, or excuse me, John 8, 58. Before Abraham was born, I, what? Am. That's the assurance. That's the assurance. And then look thirdly, he says, on this is the final phrase, he says, do not be, what? Afraid. Or literally, just fear not. Okay? Now, you would think... In the presence of Jesus in the boat, okay, that it would relieve all their fears, that it would relieve all their anxiety. But no, his appearance to his assurance to thirdly, finally, the final scene is the disciple, the disciples astonishment. I'm only just reading the text to you, right? Look at 51. He got into the boat with them. It's kind of cool, isn't it? And the wind, what, ceased, and they were utterly, what, astounded. Now, what I love there is he gets into the boat with them. So cool. He comes to them. But it says here in 51, they were utterly astounded. And, and the word just means they're just out of their minds. They're just they're just, I don't know, blown away. They're just dumbfounded. Now, look again at the text. It says that the wind, what did it do? Cease. Now, I'm just only reading 51. Did he rebuke the wind? I don't know. Maybe he did. One commentator said maybe just like Mark 4 when he told the wind. Remember that one? Hush. Be what? Still. But the the text here doesn't say it. You know what I think happened? I just think he got into the boat and his mere presence silenced the wind. I think he just, he just got into it. And the, the language is, is just as he's kind of stepping into the water, he kind of steps into the boat. And I think he gets into the boat. It was just like, shh, just the wind just, I mean, these are grown men and they can't get anywhere. And he gets in and it just stops and they are utterly astounded. Now, the question is, should they have been? Should they have been? In fact, you might even be thinking as I'm speaking that that's a good thing to be utterly astounded. And I don't think it's a good thing to be utterly astounded. I think when you read that, you're thinking, man, he just rocked their world. Now, that's not really the intent of the text. I don't think they should have been astounded. I don't think they should have thought he was a ghost because he already calmed the storm in Mark 4. He just got done feeding 25,000 and now he walks on the water and it's not a ghost, it is I, it's I am. They shouldn't have been astounded. And the reason I know that is you just got to keep reading your Bible. So read the next verse. Fascinating. Have you ever noticed this in 52? They're utterly astounded. Four key verse in the whole text. They did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were, what, hardened. (laughs) Wow. So then the question is, if you're reading 52, what does the feeding of the 5,000 have to do 
with the walking on the water. In other words, there's a profound message in the feeding of the 5,000. And it's not about the boy who shared his lunch, you understand? That's, you know, it's what what children's workers do. It's about the boy who had, you know, five fish and two loaves, and he shared it, and you should share. You know, you just have that kind of trivial stuff, not here, of course, but you have that trivial stuff where the gospel is moralized. Listen, the feeding of the 25,000 was made for one point and one point only. It was to reveal the identity of what? Jesus Christ, that he is not a man, but that he's what? God. That's why we have the miracle. He's displaying his authority, and he has the authority not only to heal the demoniac, not only to forgive sins. He's got authority over nature here, but listen, he's got authority over the elements. It it only went to one point that Jesus fed the 25,000, look at it this way, to reveal to the disciples, I could say it a different way, to reveal to you That he is God in the flesh. So that, this is important, you might trust him. That's why he did the miracle. For you to trust him. For the disciples to trust him. For the disciples to grow in their faith. Think about it. He pushed them out in the boat. He's pushing you out in the boat. He sent them into the storm. He's sending you into the storm. And he's doing it for a purpose, to ever reveal himself that you might understand his identity and that you might trust him. But look at the text. Put your nose back there in 52. They did not understand about the loss that their hearts were what? Hardened, scary. I mean, whenever I read that passage in other parts of the Bible, it talks about the hardened hearts of unbelievers. It talks about the hardened hearts of the scribe when they wanted to know if he was going to heal the man with a withered hand. And, and he said, it just says, looking around in them in anger, and he called them forth. And remember that, Mark 3. He healed that man. And, he's, and he did it because he saw them, and he, got, he saw their anger towards healing on the Sabbath. And it said that their hearts were hardened. But now he says it to the disciples. Your hearts are hardened. You say, are these disciples believers? yes. Yes? What's the difference? I think the scribes were hostile to Christ. The disciples are confused. But you may be confused today too. How you doing? In the trial. In the storm. I'm not questioning if you're saved any more than I woke up on Monday feeling under the weight of something. But listen, are, are you trusting him right now? Remember when, I think it was after this account, remember at the time... It was this one, when Jesus said, and you can finish the statement, O ye of little, what? Faith. They got faith, but they got little faith. How big's your faith, okay? Now, let me, let me draw this to a close right here. Two takeaways this morning in the lightest storms, okay? Two remembrances. Number one, I want you to remember his person in life storms. Listen, his assurances here in this text disclose his identity. Listen, they're not following a man. They're not following a great teacher. They're not following just a rabbi. They are following God's son in the flesh. And the one who can feed 25,000 also controls the raging sea. And I'm telling you this morning that you can trust him. Listen, this morning in the midst of your storm or your crisis, Do you see him for who he really is? The son of God, God in the flesh. Listen, he, if I could put it this way, he's right in the boat with you, right? He's right there. You say, Scott, I feel all alone. You're not alone. You say, I'm just, I'm bewildered. Well, you may be bewildered, but he's right there. You say, I don't like the trial. I don't like the storm. Listen, he sent the storm to you to grow you, to, to help you see who he is. And in that midst of that great crisis, he often reveals himself and he's revealing himself in the word. But secondly, you not only remember his person, his identity, but secondly, remember his promises in the storm of life. And I just want to encourage you as it encouraged my heart. Listen, I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're battling with, but you don't have to be afraid. And here's why. He's with you in his person. And he's with you in his promises, okay? It is I. 
Take courage. Do not be afraid. The writer of Hebrews quoting this in 13.5, for he himself, you could say God, or you could say Christ, he himself has said that I will never desert you, nor will I ever, what? Forsake you. He's right there in the midst of it. Jesus at the Great Commission said, Lo, I am with you, what? Always. Listen, maybe you're raising a child by yourself. Maybe your friends have hurt you. Maybe you're in a battle of a difficult marriage. Maybe some of you are facing just health issues that loom in the future. And it's very easy to become fearful, very easy to cry out. And it's okay to cry out, but we cry out often in the wrong sense. Listen, when times are like this, you can trust Christ. You do not have to be afraid. He comes to you. He comes to me in the deepest night, in the deepest part of the lake. He is ever so patient when you are terrified and fearful. Listen, I just want to encourage you as I encourage my own heart. He has not abandoned you. He is not a ghost. He is the living one. He is the master. He is the controller of the winds and the waves. And listen, he sees you. He knows you. And he says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Listen, even when you do not see Jesus, Jesus sees you and comes to you at the hour of your greatest need. He is like C.S. Lewis. He is like Aslan, the lion the Christ figure in Lewis's Narnia of Chronicles, right? Who appears, amazing how Lewis captured this, over the sea and without warning, but exactly when he is needed. In fact, Lewis says it this way, quote, Aslan was among them, though no one had see, seen him coming, end of quote. He's there with you. There's no reason for you to fear your trial. There's no reason to fear that you're holding a bomb. There's no reason for anxiety. There's no reason for hopelessness. Listen to these scriptures if you want to write them or write me this week. I can't get them all out up on the screen. Remember Psalm 139? If I ascend to heaven, you are what? There. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are what? There. If I take the wings of the dawn, capturing the rising sun at the speed of light across the universe. He says, if I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, for there your hand will what? Lead me. And your right hand will what? Lay hold of me. He's right there. I'm thinking of Psalm 46, 1. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in time of what? Trouble. He's right there with you. Listen, if you have a fear of man, some of you, okay? All of us, I suppose, do at times. I'm thinking of Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I, what? Fear. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Though an army camps against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. There's a good promise in the fear of man. Or this one in Psalm 118.6. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can mere man do to me? Maybe you have a fear of the future here this morning. And I'm thinking of Psalm 34.4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all of my fears. If you fear the future, and I don't know what it could be, listen. Trust God. The root of all fear, listen, the root of all anxiety, fear, is a lack of trust in your heavenly Father. It's just it's the Bible. You, just, you don't trust Him, and He wants to grow you, doesn't He? He's not going to be upset. He's not going to castigate you. He's going to say, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. So if you have fear, you remember Him. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds, what? In Christ Jesus. These are great texts if you fear the future. You say, well, Scott, I don't know what the future looks like. Either do I. I mean, evidently the people on that airline didn't know the future either. 
that a missile would come out of the sky and obliterate that plane and all the lives in it. He said, well, that could happen to us. Maybe, well, maybe us living in the San Joaquin Valley. Maybe the, the water. Maybe my health. Or maybe my marriage. Or maybe my kid. Well, then put this scripture in your mind. Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear. I am with you. Do not anxiously look about. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What a great text. Isaiah 41, for I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. I mean, some of you, you're holding on to the wrong thing. You're just so scared, so insecure. And I'm not being mean. You're in a wrong relationship. You're at a wrong job and you're holding it and you're holding on to something That's going to suck the life out of you. And Isaiah, God says, do not fear. I'm with you. Do not anxiously look about. I'm your God. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not. And and then God says, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Listen, God may have some of you just making a big step of faith somewhere today. Stepping off a cliff just kind of walking out by faith, and he's going to catch you. Fear not. He says, I'm with you. I'm thinking of Isaiah 44 too. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. He said, fear not. Fear not. It says in Psalm 56.3, maybe when you're ready to enter into panic palace, I call it. 56.3 of Psalm says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in. In what? You. Peter said it this way. Nick, do you know this one? First Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because what? You know what it says? He cares for you. He cares for you. He cares for you. You know this grace church of the valley. Are, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, Jesus said? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. Are you not more valuable than sparrows? You say, well, Scott, maybe the world's going to collapse. Well, it won't. But you may think it will. You say, well, gosh, look at these bombs going off. Yeah, look at the bombs going off. Psalm 46.3, here's the one. God is our refuge and what? Strength. He's a very present help in time of what? Trouble, let me finish that psalm. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with swelling, he says to us, he's a very present help in time of trouble. You say, well, pastor, I'm just, I'm getting old. I'm fearing my health. Well, I got a scripture for you. Isaiah 46, 4. Here the text says, and you might not believe this. You have to write this one down. Isaiah 46, 4. Even to your old age, God says, I will be the same. And even to your grain years, I will bear you. I have done it. I will carry you. I will bear you. I will deliver you. Well, listen. He will never leave you or forsake you. In your darkest hour, he says, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. You say, I'm afraid to die. And I know some great saints, when I get to their bedside, they're afraid to die. But then I'm reminded of this one. You know it by heart. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no, what? Evil. Why? For thou art, what? With me. Listen, we've got a great God, don't we? I'm preaching to myself. You say, well, well, Scott, why are you like that on Monday? I don't know. I just, I just, at times, I can feel overwhelmed. You say, well, overwhelmed with the church? Probably. But I love you, so I'm just thinking, well, and Scott, and then God leads me right to this passage. Listen, here's what you need to do. Remember his purpose, remember his person, and then remember his promises. And all fear will go as you put your trust in the Savior. Amen? Amen.